0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: This episode of Red Inca, we focus on the last 4 years of cricket governance in South Africa. Trust me, it's sexier than it sounds because there's been a lot of weirdness. To get through it abroad brought on someone who's been there the whole time.
0: Fidos Munda, ESPN Cricket Info South Africa correspondent.
1: A few months ago, I contacted Fidos and I said, we're going to do a podcast on South African cricket. Do you want to come on? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, we'll just wait for it all to die down a bit. We finally waited for a moment where it looked like South African cricket had maybe got its act together. We recorded the podcast. It's about to come into your ears. And of course, it's all fallen down again. There will probably be a part two. But this is a very good explainer of why South African cricket is currently falling down, if not with all the very latest details. When Fidos was not busy applying for cricket South Africa jobs that they obviously turned her down for, or eating the free peanut butter sandwiches that they lovingly made for her, she's been as bemused and angry as anyone with what is happening to cricket in South Africa. This episode we talk about failed leagues, attacking your own sponsors, paid suspensions, treatment of journalists, board strife, a lack of TV deals, and Of course, peanut butter sandwiches. Cricket in South Africa is in a very bad way. This is the episode. Burry, 2016, can you take me back? What was Cricket South Africa's position at that time?
0: Financially pretty strong and I think theoretically quite innovative in that they were looking at launching a global T20 franchise tournament and it was meant to be something that could compete with the IPL, the CPL, perhaps even the Big Bash League, something that would be independently owned. So franchises would have really rich, potentially foreign owners coming in, something that would bring in big television rights and would be a new competition. So it wouldn't exist on any of the structures that were already part of the South African franchise domestic game and something that would really see South African players want to stay in the country rather than look for big deals, playing T20 leagues around the world, ultimately resulting in them them retiring from international cricket. So they had a vision. They were in quite a good place. The team was doing okay-ish. Things were not too bad.
1: It's quite interesting looking back at the whole global T20 idea, because the more simple thing would have been to get a really good domestic league. You talk about them competing with the Big Bash, but the Big Bash is actually a very, even if that wasn't the original idea, it's a very contained Australian product, which they'll happily sell because it's a big TV market to overseas, but essentially, what they were trying to do was probably even CPL Plus in South Africa. They were trying to make sure that they were the second or third biggest league and that they had this sort of global thing. That's quite a lot to bite off for someone who hadn't really been a player in T20 cricket up until that point.
0: Yeah. And in fact, it was probably the last of the big countries, shall we say, to really get on that T20 bandwagon. I think what had happened was that the Ram Slam, as it was called then, was just a failing product. It had also been absolutely steeped in a match-fixing saga, which then resulted in players getting banned. And the problem was that the six franchises that exist in South Africa, the Lions, the Cobras, the Dolphins, the Titans, the Knights, and Warriors, don't actually have much of an identity. They are an amalgamation of provincial teams that were formed into six franchises in 2004. People don't really say, oh, I support the Titans. Maybe, you know, they've started to build some sort of team identity. But the idea of a new competition was to start to create these legacy brands, like I want to say Manchester United, but that's just going to sound silly because it's like so far from it. Brentford. (laughs) Yeah, Well, there you go. (laughs) And I think also Harun Logart was really ambitious at the time. So he had seen how well T20 cricket was working elsewhere, especially like you say, in the CPL and maybe just going one step above that. They also really wanted to attract foreign players. And also they had this kind of idea that South Africa had, you know, the ideal setup and climate and time zone for the Indian market, the UK market, maybe even further afield. So I think the idea was pretty good, but then yeah, just didn't go very well from there.
1: I mean, I think one of the big problems they had was going away from the great name, RamSlam. You can't just throw out RamSlam and then go global T20. But you mentioned Harun Lorgat. We'll get to him in a minute, but it felt like at that stage, that maybe for the first time ever, South Africa was making a play to be, well, for the first time since 1910, anyway, were making a play to be one of the major nations again. Was that a feeling around Cricket South Africa, that with one good tournament, they could sort of sweep themselves into the big three?
0: Definitely, because there was also the opposite feeling of rejection and kind of being left out in the cold when the big three formed. So you'll remember Cricket South Africa vehemently opposed it at first and were talking about more of like a big four. Then there was a big five conversation happening with Pakistan as well. And then they didn't about turn Cricket South Africa and said, actually, okay, we support it and the big three can go ahead. Kind of on the tacit assumption that they would still be like just one below the big three. So not part of the small seven, but they would still get to play England, Australia and India a lot. And then, you know, that happened a little bit, but not necessarily as much as CSA wanted. They wanted a bit of that pie, without maybe internalizing that the market share here is just not big enough and the currency is just not strong enough.
1: Yeah, and and you see that a lot. I remember um, Usman's great press conference question at the Big Three, when the Big Three came up and and Dave Richards was there with the uh, New Zealand guy. And he said, other than the fact that Australia, India and England have the biggest TV markets, what is the reason that they are so successful? And I think we've seen that a lot. You know, New Zealand cricket is quite well run. Irish cricket has been at times quite well run. But when it comes down to it, you can run South African cricket brilliantly, but you only need one slight setback, and it's very paper thin, isn't it? Because that market isn't that strong. there's no there's no backup there. And I think maybe that's what we are seeing now. So let's go to Haroon Lagat. You and I both have many opinions on Haroon Lorga, and you know I've been involved with him when was the first time I interviewed him, probably almost nine years ago now and have followed his career. He's a very, I'm going to say an interesting person. He clearly is still a person that a lot of people in cricket listen to. He is, I'm going to say this in a good way and a bad way. He is a grifter in that he will work really hard and do whatever he has to make sure that him and the people he's working with are looked after. Perhaps not always in the best interest of cricket, but he certainly does work hard. He is a very smart person, but he's also someone that has a lot of very key enemies in his past. I'm not talking about you and me. I'm talking about more people within Cricket South Africa, within the ICC. There are people that if you bring up his name in international cricket, you either get, "ah, oh, best person I ever worked for or worked with, or you get, I want to murder him. Like he really does divide. He is such an important part in what happened with that T20 tournament, isn't he?
0: Yeah, hugely important. And I just want to add that one of his key enemies over many years was the BCCI, which resulted in India not coming to South Africa for a massive four test million ODI tour and millions and millions of rands being lost. So yeah, Harun Loga, you know, still in the picture actually and really somebody worth talking about. So really the global T20 league was his brainchild and he sought to go and find these franchise owners. He had the likes of Shah Rukh Khan and Priti Zinta and, you know, all the big names owners from the PSL, owners from Singapore, a sort of conglomerate, rich consortium, half in Stellenbosch and half somewhere else. The problem, I think, was twofold. The one was that he struggled to sell the television rights. And you'll hear many versions of the story. So one of them is that he was on the brink of signing the TV rights deal when the situation happened that he then left Cricket South Africa. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. Supersport is the other big player here. So Mm. Supersport, we're under... The belief that they have the rights to all cricket in South Africa, new, old, domestic, international, whatever. When in fact, Cricket South Africa's argument was that because we have a new tournament coming and your contract only covers existing cricket, you will now have to buy the rights for this new tournament. Supersport didn't want to. And Supersport are the only paid television provider in this country. They're also the biggest paid television provider in Africa. They do all the sport. Like Sport in South Africa is Supersport. There's no other kind of sport here. So we're then really resisting buying the television rights deal. It meant Cricket South Africa were looking to the likes of Star and Sky and Taj TV and whoever else. Mm. And Harun Logat wasn't able to seal that deal quickly enough. So we had the glitzy launch. We had the team draft. This thing was ready to go, you know, 10 days before it was suddenly like, okay, there's no TV rights deal. This isn't happening anymore. There was also a lack of major sponsors but the team owners had committed by paying deposits and then some of them had to be paid back.
1: Do you think, in retrospect, there wasn't enough time or do you just think that perhaps they didn't heal the Supersport rift quick enough What, or what combination, I suppose, of both?
0: Yeah, I think a lot to do with Supersport. And also, you know, that leads to a broader conversation about how much power Supersport have over all sport in South Africa. So if you want to watch the Springboks, if you want to watch these days the Premier Soccer League, which has some other name, you're going to watch it on Supersport. They really, they also have people sitting on boards of various provincial franchises, various soccer franchises, cricket franchises that Supersport Park is owned by them. You know, they've really got a finger in a lot of pies. And so that means you don't want to mess with them. Sure, it probably means somebody needs to challenge them. But in South Africa, we haven't had that somebody. And given the economic climate now, I can't see that happening.
1: And so, what was the instant effect of that tournament falling apart?
0: That Harun Logart and CSA parted ways. So supposedly it was amicable, but from what we hear, there was a board meeting which wasn't so amicable, which resulted in Harun Logart saying, "Okay, if you don't want to do it this way, take the tournament. I'm out of here." So he was given a payout of a significant amount of money. Cricket South Africa still said they would run the tournament, so they went back to SuperSport. They tried again to try and get it going, but then there was a breakdown of communication with. The new CEO, Tabang Moroe at the time, who was not communicating with the franchise owners. So you had the franchise owners saying, we've been told this thing is starting. When is it starting? Where is our money? What's happening? Is there a broadcast deal? Are there sponsors? And that's where communication just really crumbled. And then Cricket South Africa were forced to, at first they said postpone, but ultimately it's completely confined to the rubbish heap, the global c Twenty. But they didn't stop there. They then decided they'll launch another tournament, which they called the Mzansi Super League.
1: Which is basically more like the Blast, isn't it? It's more of a domestic tournament. I know they have overseas players, but it was a very narrow-focused tournament. It wasn't advertised to fans really overseas that much. The whole idea was that it was a South African T20 tournament for local fans.
0: Yeah, I mean, the only thing making the Mzansi Super League different from the Ramslam Slam, other than the name, is that it had... A franchise in Powell, whereas the Ramsdam hasn't had that. So that Cobras franchise that I spoke about was split into the Cobras had theirs, and then Powell took the sixth franchise. And it also meant no cricket being played in the central region of the country. So Bloemfontein, Kimberley, their franchise just disappeared. So we had a slight rejigging there. And then, of course, SuperSport had said, "Well, we still own the rights to all cricket." And Cricket South Africa said, "No, you don't. This is a new tournament." And the rights to the Mzanzi Super League went unsold for two years in a row. So it was broadcast on the public broadcaster, the SABC, who didn't have to pay for it. And Cricket South Africa footed the entire bill for two years of Mzanzi Super League, which is in excess of 200 million rand and obviously a really bad idea.
1: Yeah. I mean, essentially, for those who don't know, I would assume that in South Africa, you'd be looking at 70 to 75% of your revenue, maybe even 80% of your revenue would come from TV rights deals, yeah, then exactly. then sponsors and tickets and, and and other things on top of that. So that's a huge amount. They essentially went from trying to run one of the biggest tournaments in the world to running a tournament that they couldn't even sell to the only person who would want it. So it's, it's an incredible moment. You mentioned a name there. There's a couple of names here that we have to go through. So the first one, and I'm going to pronounce this very poorly, and then you're going to pronounce it much better, is Nassai Apia.
0: That's good, except it's Apia. Apia. <laughs> oh, I thought
1: I had that too. Chief financial officer and then became...
0: Some... And then became the chief operating officer, so he got bumped up a bit, and he worked under Logart and Moreau.
1: So he basically, during all this sort of turmoil period, he released a report that essentially said that Law Gap was anti-transformation. So you already have a tournament that is clearly not going to work. I would say a tournament that wasn't going to work beforehand. Now a tournament that is crashing and burning in live time. And then basically a key person from inside your organization then jabs that with the steroid that is transformation politics.
0: Yeah. I mean, what was going on was that there was a bubbling under agenda for particularly Tabang Moroi to succeed Logart. So Tabang Moroi was the vice president of the board. And it's unusual that somebody who would go from a board position into an executive position the way that he did. He had been identified as a candidate from his days at the Gauteng Cricket Board, which is the wondrous-based Johannesburg franchise, where the transformation agenda was quite strong, especially in recent years. And they've got a lot of race politics in that region, you know, they've got a strong Indian contingent, a strong Black African contingent, and a strong white club history. So there was always a lot of tension there. Moroey was identified by people at Cricket South Africa, including Nasir Appiah, as a successor to Logart. And so, yes, the anti-transformation narrative was built so that when Logart left, a pro-transformation guy could come straight in. And we saw, I mean, the first things Tavang Moroey did was push transformation as hard as he could. So Logos' administration was not necessarily untransformed. They did have a lot of key positions occupied by people of colour. The team, I suppose we could argue, the national men's team especially, does struggle with its transformation history. So their fingers could be pointed. Interestingly, Apia and Maroi also had a falling out later on. So (laughs) everybody was fighting with everybody.
1: (laughs) And the third person, really, that needs to be mentioned, who probably isn't known as much, is Chris Nenzani. Did I get that right? That's 100%. (laughs) So what was his role at that time?
0: So he was Cricket South Africa's president since 2013. So the president serves two, three-year terms. And if you're good at maths, you'll know that he should have then left in 2019. But he had the constitution amended to give him an extra year.
1: Always a good sign. Always a good sign when you get the constitution amended for yourself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So, Nanzani actually started off as quite a good president. And Harun Logat will tell you that too whether you believe it is another question, but he did. You know, he started off really wanting the game to grow, interested in this T20 tournament, understanding the issues in South African cricket. And then if you listen to what Harun says, he says at some point Nizani just switched and just decided what we're doing is not enough. We need to be more transformation focused and that should be our only focus. If you go back a little bit, you'll see that the Minister of Sport and what we call the EPG, the Eminent Persons Group, which is made up of elders who are interested in social change in South Africa have long been saying to cricket, you are not transformed enough. And so we had the black African quota coming in after the 2015 World Cup. We've had increased quotas at domestic level. There's really been a very strong push to get more, particularly black African players. So transformation has now branched off. You know, now you're not just talking about generic black players and generic black would be someone like me. You know, anybody who has a little bit of melanin in their skin is a generic black player. But now we're, we're focusing and zoning in on the black African contingent because they are the largest demographic group in the country and because they are the most marginalized. So we're causing a rift within what was already quite a fractured situation because we've got generic black people and black African people also fighting each other.
1: So at this stage, Lorgat is gone. Nanzani and Morowi are in charge, right? They have ruined the tournament that they were trying to do. That is gone. Global T20 is gone. And Mzani. <laughs> What's it called? Mzanzi
0: Super League. I'll
1: never remember the name of this league. I don't know why. Um, It's the worst one for me. It's a tough one. Ram Slam and Georgie Pie. I'll never forget the names of those stupid leagues because of how stupid they are. So you've got your domestic league, which you are now paying for because you cannot sell the rights for. And then on top of all that, you have this situation where it is a more political charge environment. There are certainly decisions being made because of political thoughts within the country at this point. For about two years, let's say, it sort of stutters along like this. And then suddenly, it must have been what, late last year? It must have been around October because I think I was hanging out with a bunch of South Africans when this all happened. Suddenly, everyone starts getting suspended and losing their positions. Take me through what happened. Was it October 2019?
0: Yeah, so sort of between the end of the World Cup and South Africa coming home from India in October, November, and then the home summer in December. So that kind of five-month period, everything just poof, collapsed. That's a weird sound to make on a podcast.
1: It's a it? very good sound. What a shame this isn't a video to see your excitement at nailing that sound.
0: So, yeah, that period of time is really where things went wrong. And I just I have to go back again a little bit because one of the last things Harun Logart did before him and CSA Parted Ways was to appoint Otis Gibson, so he was the one who really thought Otis would take the team to the 2019 World Cup and they'd have success. The exact opposite happened. By that stage, Otis Gibson had been through two, maybe it was more like 18 months, of dealing with interference in selection, if we want to put it that way, mm. because there was constant calls from the executive, and that's Tabang Moroe and co, saying we need to transform this team more. So he had a quota imposed on him, like every other coach. But he was also then told, if you don't come back with a World Cup win, you will not keep your job which then changed to, we must at least get to the final. Anyway, South Africa got nowhere near any of those things. Otis Gibson and his entire coaching staff were dismissed. And so what happened, and this is really key, is that Tabang is sought to restructure how the national team would be run. So instead of having a coach, there was now going to be a team director, which is coach, but with two words. <laughs> and then he was going to appoint a new selection panel. Apparently he was also going to have a role in that selection panel. And the whole dimension of men's, women's academy under 19 franchise would all operate under this overarching position of director of cricket. And he sought out Graham Smith for that role. Smith was in conversation with Moroi, and things were not looking good. So he withdrew his name from the race. Then South Africa went to India under Enoch Inque. So Enoch Nkwe was and is a really good coach but a really young coach. He'd had one season in charge of the Lions franchise. They'd won the inaugural MSL. So, you know, they'd done well on the only competition that mattered in Murray's eyes. They'd also won the first-class competition and they'd won a domestic T20 Cup. So he'd won three out of four, which is great, but he'd done it once. He was then put in charge of the national side. They didn't have a bowling coach. They took Vincent Barnes, who works in the high performance and was sort of named interim bowling coach. Neil McKenzie had been sacked. They didn't have a batting coach. They lost in India worse than they've ever lost before. And they came back just humiliated. At that point, the MSL was running again. It was round two. And there were no fans initially because it started when we still had schools to go to. And the vibe was just poor. Journalists were kind of criticizing it. And Tabang Moro's big mistake was revoking the accreditation of five journalists, which caught media attention, caught sponsors' attention. And from there, really, he couldn't recover.
1: There's a classic case that you see a lot in politics and occasionally in business, which is, realistically, you and I know how few people actually read us and how little it matters to the administrators. But the administrators get so angry. So, you know, go back to my own history of, you know, Giles Clark taking my accreditation away. That allows other media to get upset, and it means that you get a bigger thing. And then also the fans are like, well, wait a minute, why are the media so upset at the administration? It's such a stupid move. And it's not that Lorgat hasn't made those own bad errors in his past before, because he's certainly not adverse to shadow banning people, as you may be aware. (laughs) Just a bit, Yeah. So essentially, once he did that, it felt like internationally people started paying a bit more attention at that point. And also, I would expect the people who gave no shits about cricket administration five minutes earlier, suddenly now are like, well, wait a minute, what is going on over there?
0: Exactly. I mean, once he did it, a couple of things happened. So accreditations were revoked for a few hours. Then there was a denial that the accreditation had been revoked and some media personnel, including myself, were then allowed back into the media box to finish the day's play. (laughs) By which point we had already taken decisions across media houses not to cover matches that day because accreditations had been revoked. So several of us, we didn't cover, we didn't write match reports. We just had something saying coverage will not happen today for this reason. That was a Sunday. On the Monday, Tebang Moroi was interviewed on a national radio station confirming that, in fact, accreditations were revoked and saying that the reason the accreditations were revoked was because journalists were reflecting Cricket South Africa in a poor light and that all they wanted was free Wi-Fi and food and that they would not be getting those things anymore and that they would not be sitting in a media box anymore and almost like reinstating the ban. So this was where we had the South African National Editors Forum taking notice and publicly condemning CSA and saying this needs to be sorted out. Standard Bank, the test sponsors, stepped in and said, we need to know what's going on. The South African Cricketers Association, who had long had a battle with CSA over a domestic restructure, which they took to court, which we haven't even spoken about yet, also said something. And so we had business leaders and a major sponsor and the National Editors Forum and the international press and everybody kind of bearing down on CSA and the board had to do something. So what they did was suspend Moroe. I will say that he contacted each of the five that he had banned. In my case, saying it was not his decision, but rather a board decision first. Also saying that we should make amends and then offering me a peanut butter sandwich because Cricket South Africa couldn't afford anything else. So offering that we meet to have a peanut butter sandwich to discuss things. We haven't had that, obviously, but he seemed sincere in that he was sorry. And I think by that point, he knew he was going to be suspended. And then the next day he was.
1: Peanut butter sandwich, which is also the traditional meal of South Africa. Shh. But he did say that you wanted free food, and then he offered you a peanut butter sandwich and you were willing to meet him. So I think in many ways he was all right. So he gets suspended for that. Now, does anyone else get suspended at that point? Is it just him?
0: No. So by that point, six other members of staff had also been suspended. <laughs> and that includes Nasiah Pia. So they had been suspended just before him, actually. So Nassai Appear was suspended, Clive Eckstein, the head of sales and sponsorships, Corey van was suspended, and he was the acting director of cricket. And then there was a PA, a human resource person, and somebody else also suspended. The, the three of them were subsequently dismissed, and they haven't fought those dismissals in court. The reason those big names, Corey, Clive Eckstein, and Nassai were suspended was because of a delayed payment to the South African Cricketers Association, over players' image rights from the first MSL. So Cricket South Africa had waited more than a year before they had made those payments. And SACA were about to take them to court, the Cricketers' Association, saying we won't actually play the second MSL unless we get the money. And the blame for not paying those image rights fees in time was laid at the feet of Curry, Clive Ekstein, and Nassai Apia, and so they were suspended. They were all three then... Uh, dismissed. Cory van was then reinstated. He still works at Cricket South Africa. Nassai, Apia, and Clive Eckstein were fired, and they are appealing their dismissals in court. So that was the Morowi engineering of getting rid of the people that he disagreed with, because by that point, him and Apia had also had a falling out.
1: So, him getting suspended then is in some ways quite a positive move because he at this point is quite a negative almost everything he touches, whether he would have become a good CEO or not. He was quite young when he got it and also got it at the worst possible time when basically you put a young person who wasn't ready for the job into a dumpster fire and told him to put it out, you know, with a little bit of spit. So, it wasn't an ideal situation. From that suspension, how long is it from him getting suspended to him getting the flick?
0: So he was suspended on December the 9th and fired in August. So it was a good nine months. And he's paid. And he was paid the whole time. And he was paid a giant salary, so it won't sound giant to you. But it was something along the lines of 350,000 Rand a month, which is roughly $25,000 or somewhere around there, which is quite a lot of money, and especially in South Africa. So the reason that it took so long to fire him was because a investigation and a forensic report needed to be drawn up detailing what he had done wrong. So that took a very long period of time to happen. The report was only commissioned in March.
1: So who pushed for that report? I've never been clear on whose idea was that?
0: That was the board and the board had to do it because, you know, you can't just fire somebody. There's a legal procedure that you've got to follow. And so in accordance with the labor law, they needed reasons to fire him. So they decided that they would appoint an independent forensic company to conduct this report to interview members of staff and go through documents and so on. And they also then, at one point, changed the terms of reference of the report. So initially, the report was supposed to cover everything from about the time that Logart was around, and then it changed, and then it only had to cover a different period of time. So all of that combined resulted in the report being delayed. It was only delivered in July.
1: And he's then fired in August. When do the sponsors start going completely crazy? I know you mentioned it a little bit in 2019, but it seems that was something that has happened a little bit more of recent times.
0: So Standard Bank, initially in December, when the journalist's accreditations were revoked, made some noises that they were unhappy. At the same time, so did Momentum, who sponsored the one-day side. But not just the one-day side, the women's team. The only reason the South African women have contracts is because of Momentum's money. They also sponsor the domestic one-day cup and a couple of development initiatives. They had also said to CSA, unless you sort things out, we will pull out. I don't think that warning was ever heeded. Standard Bank pulled out at the end of April when their contract ended, for I guess reputational reasons, but also they themselves are in some economic turmoil. Momentum then pulled out very recently, so we're talking about post the Moroi firing, where Momentum then decided they would not renew. They will continue to sponsor the women's team for the next two years, which is great because they will need that to go to the World Cup. But beyond that, you know, Momentum have pulled out of a lot of big things, including the One Day Cup. So you've got. All three of South Africa's domestic competitions, 4 day Cup, one day Cup, T20, will take place without sponsors this summer. That's huge.
1: <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's huge. But when you did have a TV sale earlier, it's kind of more of the same. Then, this is one of my favorite things. Suddenly, a board member, if I'm not mistaken, takes to Twitter or on an interview and slags off. Was it Standard or Momentum? I'm not even sure which sponsor she slagged yeah. off. Yeah.
0: So, this is an interesting one. The independent board member, Dr. Eugenia Kula Amayao, who was appointed to the board in July, because we've also had, which we haven't said yet, over this period from Morowi being suspended to being fired, several board members resigning. So they have to replace them. And Eugenia Kula Amayao is one of the people who is replacing someone who's resigned. Her directive is transformation. She's put in charge of the social justice and nation building platform, which CSA formed in July as a response to the Black Lives Matter movement, which is another discussion we should have. She's quite militant in her views and quite strong in them. And when momentum say they're pulling out, she takes to Twitter and says that they must be careful and must know who they are threatening. And then she gets reprimanded by Cricket South Africa's board and is due to be investigated by the same social and ethics committee that she is on. So she has to recuse herself from that committee to be investigated. She's now resigned, so the point is moot, I suppose. But she does feel very strongly about uh, various things, including and most especially
1: transformation. I'm going to need a peanut butter sandwich to get us through there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> finally, the report is out. So you say July, the report is brought into CSA. In August, Moroi is finally, they stopped paying him, I suppose is the best way of putting it, because he hasn't worked for them for quite some time. Then there's this new shitstorm that comes sort of on the back of that, which is the fact that essentially there is a report that is out there that no one is allowed to see except for Cricket South Africa, which at this point is being kept together by peanut butter sandwiches and blue tack from what I can tell. Who is trying to get that report out, and why won't that report get released at that point? So
0: at that point, Cricket South Africa's board say that releasing the report – would potentially be dangerous for further litigation that needs to take place because the report implicates several people in the organization. And and we still don't know how many people. And so if you're just releasing these names willy-nilly and you've actually got to take them to court, you're going to prejudice your own case. And they hold firmly to that. And so the only people allowed to see the report are independent directors of CSA's board at this point, anybody from the members' council. So the members' council is made up of the 14 provincial affiliate presidents who's willing to sign a non-disclosure agreement and nobody else. The person who takes issue with this is the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee, who are the legislatively appointed governing body for all sports federations. They have their own dysfunctions. Hmm. They also have an acting president. Their constitution is being changed. Like, If they are having a problem with you, your own problem is much bigger than you ever thought it was because like they are such a dysfunctional organization. They say to Cricket South Africa, we must see the report. And Cricket South Africa says no. The only thing Saskatch can do is go to the sports minister, which they do. And the sports minister then intervenes and says, all right, I've had it. You children do not know what you're doing. I'm stepping in.
1: Now, this is where the ICCs come into it a little bit. So that was the point where people started saying, well, the ICC now will say that the government is involved in your cricket, you can be kicked out of the ICC. Now, it's important to remember that the Sri Lanka cricket team, each squad that they have is still okayed by the sports minister, and that similar things have happened in Afghanistan and Nepal. The BCCI had acting ministers on their board for very long times. There have been a numerous amount of political interference. The ECB have had to come in and explain many things to the English government. Sandpaper Gate, I I could go on. My point is that government interference in cricket is a really, really common thing. But then the fact that this was a bit more official and the fact that this was a new one, (laughs) I think there were people that were a little bit nervous about what would happen with the ICC and Cricket South Africa at that point.
0: Definitely. And I think a good case study is what happened just next door in Zimbabwe in 2018. So something very similar in that the Sports and Recreation Committee, the SRC, disbanded their board because there was an allegation of improper electioneering. And then the crucial thing is that those disbanded board members then laid a complaint at the ICC saying the government is interfering in our board. We are now disbanded because they've interfered. At that point, the ICC stepped in. So crucially, you need a complaint to be laid. So potentially, the now resigned Cricket South Africa board could go to the ICC and say, we were forced to resign. Maybe I shouldn't be giving them these ideas, public <laughs> platform. And, you know, we were forced to resign because of government interference. And then the ICC would take quite a close look at it. Until a complaint is laid, I think people are just taking a dim view and starting to get worried about it. And we saw in Zimbabwe, the board was suspended. It's also worth remembering that, and this is going to sound terrible, but Zimbabwe are not as, important to the ICC is South Africa. So, you know, to ban South Africa would take a lot more. As you say, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, there's all these examples of countries who get away with a lot. So I don't think South Africa will be banned. I think maybe they should be.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm with you. I thought the Zimbabwe one laid a very difficult position for the ICC going forward because, I mean, Imran Khan could not be more in charge of Pakistan domestic cricket at the moment if he tried. Exactly. And so, you know, we know that these sorts of things happen all the time. All this is going on. And almost every day, it seemed like you lot in the South African press were going through, you were mid breakdown um, and being frustrated. Uh, Was there another mini ban or something? Oh, no, it wasn't a mini ban. What was it? It was that you all wanted jobs, uh, with Cricket South Africa and you didn't get the jobs he with did. Cricket South Africa. And that was what, so who said that how did that come about?
0: So now we have a second acting CEO since moroe's suspension. So the first acting CEO was Jacques Fall, who's Dr. Jacques Fall, who's got a lot of experience in sports administration and was actually doing quite a good job, but had a breakdown with the board as happens here. <laughs> and he then resigned before his tenure was due to end. He was supposed to be there until about the end of August A second acting CEO has now come in, Kugandri Govender. And Kugandri is the first female CEO of Cricket South Africa. So that is worth pointing out. You know, we're talking about transformation and women of color always form part of that conversation. She was Clive Eckstein's boss. So she was like the chief commercial officer. So the one dealing with the sponsors. And Mm. I've just told you the whole history of what's happened with the sponsors.
1: Seems like she did a great job.
0: (laughs) Yeah, fabulous. She called a meeting with the players. And this was shortly after the, the most recent board turmoil in which she reassured them that, that Cricket South Africa is not in crisis, <laughs> because that's obvious, and, and that they're not financially struggling. When a player then asked, well, how come in the media the reports every day are of crisis? Her response was that because journalists have applied for jobs at Cricket South Africa, they haven't got those jobs. And so now they're kind of getting back at us. Prompting a whole lot of us to clarify that we have, in fact, not applied for jobs at Cricket
1: South Africa. Have you ever applied for a job with Cricket South Africa?
0: I have never applied for a job at Cricket South Africa, and I don't think there will be a Cricket South Africa left for me to apply <laughs> to for a job at any
1: point. Again, it goes back to the Moroe thing of you're making something. I mean, at this point, I don't think it mattered because everyone already thought, but by this point, everyone's paying attention anyway. And so they know it. But again, it makes you look like amateurs and like you don't know what you're doing. And it's obviously the worst possible thing. At that point, Cricket South Africa should be trying to get their beliefs across to the journalists as much as possible. Even if the journalists don't take it, they should be bringing you guys in. And that is the way that you deal with the media. The way you don't deal with the media is peanut butter sandwiches, as we've already um, (laughs) talked about, and basically making up lies or even half-truths. I'm sure there are journalists that have applied for jobs, but that is not why most of you are angry. Most of you are angry is because you're watching this dumpster fire, In real time is why you're upset.
0: Yeah, and we're angry because we've just come through a winter in lockdown where we would have (laughs) normally had a break, but we've worked every single day of our lockdown winter and we're about to work every single day of the summer. That's why we're
1: angry. Trying to follow this from the outside, it looked like the board just wouldn't go away. Yeah, And so you said that a lot of the board had come and gone, so it wasn't like from 2016 to August. It wasn't as if that board was set in stone. People had come and gone. Yeah. But by the end, it was quite clearly a dysfunctional sporting board. It was no longer in charge of anything. There was no sponsors. They were having all sorts of trouble with almost everything. And yet, even with the Olympic Committee getting involved and then the sports minister getting involved, the board members didn't leave. So, my question at that point is is this because they were inept or are there more nefarious claims?
0: Well, the board members do get paid an amount of 400,000 Rand a year. Which is, you know, a good South African salary if they attend all their board meetings. So there is one obvious financial reason and that amount doubled
1: very recently. So Well, they're doing such a good job. Why would you not want to pay them more?
0: <laughs> it used to be nothing, right? It used to be you were doing it because you were interested in seeing the game grow. And you sure your flights and your accommodation would be taken care of. But I mean, there's also the perks of being on the board. You know, you fly first yeah. class. You go, okay, not anymore. You go to interesting locations and watch cricket. You kind of rub shoulders with the hoi polloi of the world. So, for people whose lives are dedicated to club cricket and fairly low level administration, to get to the Cricket South Africa board and suddenly be a big deal is an important thing. And that is probably reason number one that they clung on. So, there's this financial aspect, there's the stature aspect. Beresford Williams, the acting president who took over from Chris Nenzani, who actually resigned three weeks before his second extended constitutionally amended tenure was due to end. Just before he left, one of the things he said was that, I believe I still have a lot to offer the game. I'm committed and I'm dedicated and I don't think I've done anything wrong. Yet he was implicated in the forensic report for a conflict of interest. So, you know, I don't know how he doesn't believe he's done anything wrong, but he doesn't. And so they clung on and they clung on and they clung on. And only when it became very obvious last weekend that there is no way, that the sports minister will allow this board to continue, that he will step in and dissolve them, did it become very clear they had no choice, they had to resign. So the members council, and the members council is a funny structure because it's got these 14 provincial presidents, six of whom sit on the board. So it's actually kind of voting on itself a lot of the time. So those six had to recuse themselves from the members council meeting. The remaining eight then took a resolution, the board must stand down because they are the highest decision-making power in South African cricket. They told the board, this is our decision all of you, even the ones who are part of us, you must go. Hmm. And so therefore, yeah, they had no choice. They had to step down. I mean, if they hadn't done it that way, the minister would have dissolved them.
1: The whole thing about what the board members are paid is very interesting. I think um, Manners might have written a piece about it. Essentially, when you have amateurs and you're not being paid at all, you have all sorts of problems from those sorts of people. A, they think they're a little bit above the law. They'll say, oh, well, we're just volunteering our time. Yeah. And also you end up getting 75-year-old rich old quite often white people involved in those sorts of things because yeah. they're the people who have time. So to get people who actually understand modern sport and modern business and and how things work, you have to pay. But then if you pay too much, the jobs become almost uh, too important at a certain point and people don't leave them. So it's a very interesting sort of circle that South Africa, they went from being too amateur to being too highly paid essentially in those positions (laughs) in a very, very short space of time while they were quite clearly operating a sport at a very dysfunctional level. Now we have now at the point where Harun Logat is back and he now has a position full circle. Is he on an interim board? I mean, my guess is he'll get a very good job, but what is his current position?
0: So currently he's on a nine member interim board, which was compiled by the minister of sport, the South African Cricketers Association, potentially SASCOC, although I doubt they actually said anything. And that board is supposed to be in place for three months. It's supposed to do a lot of implementation of constituting the new board. It's supposed to be looking at issues of finance transformation, although that's kind of been kicked to the curb a little bit for now. It's supposed to be investigating why CSA's relationships with basically everyone have broken down. And one of the key factors is that people who are on this nine-member board should then not become part of the permanent board. So, you know, let's remember this, archive this somewhere so that (laughs) if we end up with a situation that some of them are now sitting on the permanent board, we've got to come back and ask why. Essentially, this board should really only be getting cricket back on track. What is really interesting is that this new nine-member board has said they believe one from among their ranks should represent Cricket South Africa at the ICC instead of the acting president of the members council, who's Rian Richards. Now, which one from among those nine member ranks do you think <laughs> would want to represent cricket South Africa at the ICC? It is a mystery.
1: I would love to be in that meeting where he can to put his name forward without like writing it up on a big whiteboard. Oh, we'll be on Zoom now, won't? We? So he'll have like a background. Sign. Um, <laughs> yeah, he'll have like Dubai as his background picture on on Zoom. <laughs> but yeah, look, it's very interesting. On top of all of this, you know, we have discussed this and. I think it's a terrible situation of a very bad dysfunctional body who made a lot of poor decisions with a lot of people who maybe weren't ready for the roles that they got and weren't qualified for them, who made a lot of poor decisions. But as all this is happening, the Black Lives Matter conversation starts. So Ngidi said, I I went back and listened to that. I I think I used it on, on my Double Century podcast. He said basically the most softest phrase on Black Lives Matter that almost anyone had said And a bunch of older white players got very upset with it and Black Lives Matter became a big thing. There was then talk of repatriation of players, past black players who'd been treated very poorly. Players like... uh, Who was the wicketkeeper that got done for match fixing? Solokino. Solokile. Players like him who... Got done for match fixing. He then brought up all these other things about his selection. I think I wrote about it at the time. I think mostly it was down to the fact that ABWs could average 55 and wiki keep. <laughs> that was probably as much to do with it. But that doesn't mean that those things haven't happened to other players. And I think there were very bad conversations possibly had at times because I, I think everyone in a South African cricket was afraid of being honest and open because of everything. So the Black Lives Matter thing sort of then pops on the top. There's no way that Cricket South Africa can afford to pay old black players for bad treatment when they can't afford to do anything other than peanut butter sandwiches, right? But at the same time, there needs to be... You and I have had this discussion very late at night in very many pubs before. I'm probably on Crick Info once or twice as well. For me, the transformation thing doesn't make sense the way they're going at it. South African cricket makes their cricketers through posh schools. You have to follow where you create cricketers, and then you have to put your people involved. If the South African government really want transformation of South African cricket, I have always said that the best thing they could do is to be able to create their own schooling systems, copy the already successful schooling systems, maybe even bring some of those people across and do it, and make it a multiracial. It doesn't just have to be for black Africans either. It could be right across the board. You set up these super schools. They won't cost as much money. I know I said super schools, so it sounds expensive. You know, Get LeBron James or Elon Musk to. Uh, give you some money if you have to. Set up these sorts of schools and then focus them on transforming sport. And I'm not just talking about cricket because I think rugby and many other sports and tennis and hockey all have a similar problem within South Africa. Transform them all at once. The problem is cricket South Africa don't have the money to be able to do this. The South African government want cricket South Africa to be able to do this. You've got this weird Olympic committee that you've talked about in the middle of all this sort of confusing everything. The biggest problem in south african cricket is not the way it is currently governed it is the giant black lives matter movement the transformation problem that is still the biggest problem in south african cricket and has been since 1992 and will be for quite some time all of these other problems within the governance of the game just slows that down doesn't it
0: definitely i think also we've kind of lost sight of what needs to happen for transformation to take place with integrity and authentically and effectively. So I think the first point that's worth making is that I don't think the government wants South African cricket to transform properly. I think the government wants an image. You know, we've got a a national party who have been in charge since democracy, who are fighting against losing face from a radical right wing that is wanting land expropriation without compensation. And then who are fighting quite a weird kind of conservative white party on the other side. So. The national party wants to say to his people, look, we're doing things, we're changing things. And this is why the minister pops up every now and then with this rhetoric about transformation. It's always at opportune moments. Mm. It's always before an election. It's always when the mood is, is there and things are bubbling under. So I don't think the government are coming at this honestly. And that's probably problem one. Then I think this thing about schools, you know, South Africa has got more than 7,000 high schools and of those 30 or 40 are the ones that produce the top sports people. So Mm. yes, you're right in that the resources need to be spread more evenly. But at the same time, there's a whole kind of social experiment there. I mean, Makai Antini is a great example. You take a kid out of the township, put him in an elite school. He can't speak English. He's just culturally in a completely different environment. Aaron Pangiso spoke about it. He went into the mess hall barefoot and they shouted at him and didn't give him food and said, this is not the township. So for these guys to be taken out of their communities is also problematic. So what Definitely. do we do? Build elite schools in less elite communities? I, just I wonder if we can find players another way. Probably not. South Africa's always found its players through elite schools, but the women's team doesn't. So mm. that's a good way to look at it, that the women's team, you've got girls coming from various backgrounds, various socioeconomic circumstances. Sure, it's less professional. And so that's maybe why you're getting a, a mix of people. The other thing, and this is my kind of last point in transformation, is that where players are lost is at the level where they turn professional. So a young black kid, generically speaking, will need to find a job a lot sooner than a young white kid who maybe will have generational wealth to fall back on. Hmm. And so if that young black kid doesn't get a job within his first season of leaving school, he will go and do something else. So we need to be contracting more players at provincial and franchise level and paying them well enough. And Cricket South Africa just doesn't have the money. You know, franchise players are not well paid. If the domestic restructure goes ahead, 70 cricketers will lose their jobs. Which 70 do you think it will be? Like, Mm. it's just quite problematic that Cricket South Africa, and especially as it runs into this financial crisis, is going to lose millions of rands. And as it loses money, it can't develop the game. So... Harry Logart, actually, uh, just to bring it back to him, mm-hmm. was talking about this with me the other day. He does talk to me now. And was <laughs> saying that the effects of this, we're not going to just see in the next year or two. We will see it in generations to come because young sports kids are going to play other sports or they're going to become other things, lawyers, accountants, whatever, technological internet people. Yeah. Uh, because cricket is no longer an attractive career prospect in this country. And that is because of this. When we look back in 20 years and we don't have jobs, so we'll just be sitting in a pub somewhere looking back. We'll be saying, you know, 2020 is really where South African cricket
1: lost the plot. Thank you very much for coming on. It's lunchtime for you. So go and get yourself a lovely peanut butter sandwich.
0: You knew it.
1: (laughs) Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guests in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. He looks after your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets. If you're liking this podcast then perhaps you'll like our other show, Double Century. It's my podcast on the history of cricket, where I take you through the stories that made our game. Season 1 included 11 topics like the evolution of batting, reverse swing, and that first crazy test. But Season 2 is dedicated to one topic, race in cricket. For that, we look at the incredible story of Basil D'Oliveira, but also cricket's historically strange relationship with race. We look at what happened to Basil D'Oliveira and also delve into Cricket's historically strange relationship with race. You can find Double Century in all your podcasting streams.